0: my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the NHS waiting for change. More than 7 million patients are on waiting lists for non-emergency operations. That's the highest number since records began 16 years ago. The government solution involves telling GPs to give a range of options to anyone referred for treatment. Choices might include travelling further for healthcare, or going private at the expense of the NHS. Is this the only way forward? Or is there an alternative? We're going to be talking to Chris Thomas from the left-leaning think tank, the IPPR. He heads up their commission on health and prosperity and wrote a book about how to save the NHS called The Five Health Frontiers a new radical blueprint he's warning that the government's plans risk creating a two-tier health system before that just a reminder that the byline times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the byline times that's our brilliant monthly newspaper which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else get more details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well, our new film at Byline TV with John Sweeney. It's called The Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine. Watch it now at Byline TV. Welcome then, Chris. And just so we can understand what we're talking about, can you just give us a brief explainer of what the government's proposal is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose reacting to the kind of shocking state of the NHS and the figures, 7 million people waiting for routine care, but actually red alarms flashing on pretty much every indicator when we look at the data in the NHS, they're looking at ways, I suppose, to their mind to make the process of getting care more efficient. So the indications that GPs will be asked to give people a wider range of choice in this case, with an onus on them to suggest private options, as well as NHS options for referrals. The thing there is that whilst I can see that that might mean that some people go to services they might not otherwise use that have got quicker availability, the challenge is is that that's really only an option available to people that have the means to pay. It, It starts to dilute that founding principle of the NHS, that it should be available to all regardless of our means to pay. So there could be some quite difficult inequalities that emerge from this. And that, to my mind, would outweigh some of the small advantages it might bring in terms of efficiency.
0: My understanding was that if you are someone who is offered private treatment as an NHS patient, that the NHS would pay for that and that they say that there would be help available as well if you have difficulty with transport costs getting to the private hospital. So it's the NHS that would pick up the tab, not the individual.
1: I don't think that that clarity has been brought through. And this means there are cases where the NHS will purchase independent capacity and that would remain free. But even if that's the case, even where that scheme is agreed upon with the private healthcare sector, there's a slightly worrying sting to that tail, which is that, Ultimately, what it's doing is giving a private healthcare sector oxygen, it's allowing it to grow and in turn to suck more resources that could be going to public healthcare. Now, one of the most concerning ways that it will do that is in hiring healthcare staff. So the NHS has an ongoing workforce crisis that has over 140,000 vacancies at any given time, really struggling with that kind of capacity question. We only train a certain number of clinical staff. We have caps in the UK on our medical and nursing training placements. And so, if we have staff that are then going and being routed into the private healthcare sector, then what we're doing is limiting further the capacity of our public healthcare offer to meet people's needs. And so, you know, kind of short term, but particularly medium to long term, that's going to make it more difficult for those reliant on public healthcare to get the care they need as quickly as they need
0: it. Of course, this is not a novel idea, is it? Alan Milburn, the health secretary to Tony Blair, did block book private hospitals in a bid to reduce waiting lists and was successful in doing so. So the conservatives might respond, well, they're simply doing something that Labour has done in the past and that any pragmatic government might do at a time of particular need for the NHS.
1: I think if there is an argument for this kind of scheme, that's the strongest. People are waiting for care, and therefore, why wouldn't we pull every lever available to us? We've certainly seen, as well as the government, the shadow health secretary make that argument. I think the challenge is, is that if that is devoid of then a longer term plan to give the NHS the resource and the capacity that it needs so that, uh, yes, there might be a pragmatic immediate solution, but the final path, there is a route to... Something that's more sustainable where public healthcare is available for everyone that needs it, then what we'll end up with is an independent sector, a private healthcare sector that's baked into the supply chain of how healthcare works. So I think the very minimum onus that would be on government if they did want to make that argument would be that it comes alongside a plan to make sure that three, five years from now, the NHS has the workforce, the funding, the resource, the innovation, technology that it needs to be the best possible provider. I think that's what the public want. You know, poll after poll, survey after survey shows that they would prefer it was the NHS. They want the NHS to remain true to its free, comprehensive, tax-funded core principles as set out in 1948. So uh, I think there's only really a mandate for that path into the future.
0: I'll come to the role of private healthcare in a moment, Chris. But when you describe what the public wants there are more than 7 million people on waiting lists and we know that to some extent and I stress to some extent that was caused by the pandemic we also know because I've spoken to you about it before on this podcast that some of it was caused by the pressures on the NHS as a result of austerity these two things work on a a twin track really but In the immediate term, you've got people who are desperate for operations. And certainly when I've interviewed people, as I have done over many years on a number of occasions and say, do you really care where you get your treatments if you need an operation? Maybe not as an urgent operation, but something that that needs to be done. People seem fairly indifferent about whether it's carried out at a private hospital or an NHS hospital. And anecdotal experience suggests that sometimes people have a, a more enjoyable stay, as it were, in a private hospital than in an NHS setting.
1: I totally agree. We're seeing it even outside this scheme that in the data as we monitor what people's healthcare behaviors look like, a growing what we call an opt-out from the NHS, whereby people are actively choosing and paying, whether that's by purchasing private medical insurance or actually the bigger trend is towards just self-paying. So using savings or in some cases, loans or debt or whatever it might be. But they are choosing private healthcare. The reasons for that are predominantly access. It offers you a quicker route through. And I don't blame people for wanting a quick read through it. It's horrible to wait. The anxiety, the pain that comes with that can be really difficult. The knock-on consequences that we're seeing on people's economic lives as well, in terms of what health at the moment means for our capacity to get a job, stay in work, and to earn enough money in a cost-of-living crisis. And as you say, the second reason is the experience is potentially better in private healthcare settings. I think the challenge is, is that it's by no means inevitable that that would be the case. It's not inevitable that the NHS wouldn't be able to provide quick access and a brilliant experience. As you've outlined, that's actually a political choice that comes down to what happened during austerity in terms of resilience being actively stripped out of the NHS, what was called efficiency savings, but has transpired to be a strip out of resilience, but also how the COVID-19 pandemic was handled. It is absolutely possible, as other health systems have shown, to have come out the other side of COVID-19 with significantly more capacity. So if we see it as a political choice, then there's something quite worrying that we might end up with a status quo where mediocrity is accepted in the NHS. And in turn, that incentivizes people with means to use private healthcare. What we might end up with is something either very akin to the education system where, you know, something is available for all, but maybe it's not ideal. And for those with means, something much better is available. Or, I'd say in a worst case scenario, something like dentistry at the moment, where we've seen this kind of trend play out just 20 years ago. And now we have people really, really struggling to get an NHS dentist to get the dentistry care they need. And in some cases, and some parts of the country, a rise of things like home dentistry, which is just shocking. So, uh, I would hate to see that become our new status quo.
0: I mentioned your book in which you provide a radical blueprint for the future of the NHS. Does that envisage a role for private healthcare within the healthcare ecology of the uk
1: so what it doesn't suggest is that we would need to ban private healthcare providers if they want to operate fine what it suggests is that we need to go back to an often forgotten part of nye bevan's vision for the nhs people know that he talks about it being publicly owned tax funded comprehensive and universal at the point of use but If you go into the debates around the NHS and the parliamentary scriptures as the bill was passing, there's one other thing that Bevan was very clear on, and that was that the NHS should be a vehicle to universalise the best. And that Mm -hmm. element, the best, differentiates the NHS from most other parts of the welfare state. Education doesn't universalise the best. Certainly employment benefits and employment support doesn't universalise the best. Much more in employment services like a safety net. And so, my vision for the NHS would be very much that it is good enough to be the provider of choice. There would be no benefit from choosing a different provider. And there are routes to deliver that, absolutely, with the right political will, the right policy decisions possible to get to.
0: So, that's a really interesting perception, I think, then, this idea, because most of us have grown up, I think, with the idea that the welfare state is a safety net that it is there for when things go wrong but certainly as far as the NHS is concerned then you're saying that there was a higher aspiration clearly something must have gone wrong if you need healthcare treatment I suppose but it is not about providing a baseline service and from its inception it was never about just that
1: yeah, exactly right. It's always, at least in its inception, has meant to be about making sure that on that logic that Bevan used to talk about, that sickness isn't a misdeed for which you should be penalised. It's very much a misfortune that we would collectively as a country and as communities fund a service that could provide access to exactly what we needed. And we've seen a watering down of that aspiration. I mean, one of the ways that this feels very tangible to me is just how the debate has shifted on general practice where in 2015 the debate was almost entirely around whether we could make it so that 48 hours was the standard you could get a gp appointment in 48 hours and, and potentially quicker if you needed a different staff member in primary care or, or you had a much more urgent inquiry and today that's a week or two and so we see that kind of increase in what we're willing to tolerate within the nhs and in every case of this kind of compromise what it does is it means that if there is a private provider out there that is able to provide quicker access and in many cases a much more sophisticated way of booking it, you know, private healthcare much more in common with Open Table or Netflix in, in terms of its user experience than the slightly clunkier experience of the NHS, then that grows. It gives people the means to opt out, and the inequality rises. Two tier system becomes more likely if we went back to universalise the best, I think we'd start to think about some of the things that the private sector is doing that's very appealing and say that those should be absolutely standards that the NHS meets.
0: That would come at a cost, of course. And we live in a political culture where in the mainstream, debate is often around tax cutting or how awful it is that taxes rise. Do you think there's any appetite a amongst the public and b amongst the political class to raise taxes that would fund the NHS at the level that you're describing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the sentiment is generally quite clear that if there's anything that the public are willing to pay a bit more tax for, it's often to make sure that the NHS is as good as it can be. So that sentiment is is generally quite strong. I think the breakdown is in political will and i think that's cross-party i don't think there's any major uk party at the moment that is particularly willing to open that debate on tax at the moment but i think that's slightly misguided for two reasons firstly because we can do things that make the nhs's financial situation more sustainable there is a venn diagram in which things that keep nhs costs under control and that make it better that they overset and two of those are one where we locate care so in the in the community it's cheaper enough to much more appropriate than in very expensive hospital settings and the second is prevention if can get earlier intervention then costs a are, are decrease in the number of times potentially someone say uses the health system go down as well the second big thing is that the NHS isn't just a cost it's not just a sunk cost it's absolutely a kind of keystone of the economy it's, it's often forgotten that the origins of the NHS weren't just about social justice they're about what the economy needed in terms of that human capital argument and today we've got over 2.5 million people out of work because of health needs all kinds of damage being done to the economy because people can't get access to healthcare as quickly as they need it and so as an investment proposition I think it's a very good one and I think if we're doing the cost benefit it would be quite easy to justify I think if a political party were bold enough to say, look, what we're actually going to do is put this forward as both the health agenda, the public's number one or number two issue in most opinion polls, and for the economy, the other thing that the public really care about, then they'd have a fundamentally very popular proposition.
0: Here Starmer has outlined a scheme which sounds similar, at least on the face of it, to the government's in terms of giving patients more choice In terms of where they are treated, and there's certainly evidence suggesting that if people have that power in their hands, that waiting times can be reduced. Is there any difference between what Keir Starmer's proposing and what Rishi Sunak's proposing?
1: Yeah, so I think the proposal that we've seen from the opposition from Labour has nuances that make it actually much more comfortable. So the scheme, as Labour have proposed it, is based on things that we're seeing actually happen already around the country. They're just not happening across the whole country. So they're isolated examples of it. But what it would essentially entail is that instead of being added to one waiting list for one service in one location, probably your closest one and the one that you would normally use, you would be added to several waiting lists within your region. So if you're in West Yorkshire, potentially to all the waiting lists for services in that area. And what would happen is that if you were able to be seen by an NHS service quicker, a space became available because they're moving through their waiting list either more quickly or because that waiting list just started off being smaller, then you would be offered the choice to take that up. The schemes as we've seen them play out don't make that an obligation. There's no penalty or obligation to take it, but for lots of people, that would be a preferable option. So that's utilizing the NHS's own capacity in quite an efficient and clever way, to my mind, and probably makes it a preferable scheme to the kind of thing that we've seen and the kind of attempt to
0: mobilize choice that we've seen from the government more recently people like the idea of choice don't they they like the idea that they might have some say in where they're treated and when they're treated it's this kind of strange consumerization of the nhs isn't it and The counter to that is, well, if my local hospital is efficiently run and has sufficient investment, I won't need to go on an app. I won't need to go through any system. My local hospital will be able to book me in in a timely fashion and deliver my elective surgery.
1: Yeah, that to me is where we need to get to. That's the aspiration. So, in both these schemes, we're talking about pragmatic things that emerge because something
0: is going wrong somewhere. They're both kind of an admission of failure, aren't they? But it plays as well to a, as I say, this idea of a consumerization of health in which we are seen as customers rather than patients. That might have some positive sides to it. I don't deny that because simply being seen as a patient can make you a passive object. But it speaks of failure in this context, I would suggest.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on. And it was used in the kind of new labour era to facilitate competition between providers. There was this sentiment that if people had choice, then you could get providers to compete for patients, you would be able to group them into successful and unsuccessful, and you'd be able to penalise those that aren't doing well and those that are could get a lot more attention and resource and be allowed to take on ever bigger geographies. The problem is, is that didn't work hugely well. The kind of example of that is that in many cases what we saw were in some parts of the country hospitals being run very very hot and this kind of performance management culture emerged where there was lots of risk aversion was lots of blame people were burning out and in the worst cases there were some really bad instances of patient safety failings west staffordshire for example that no one was able to own up to that whistleblowers weren't allowed to get through because that's the kind of dynamic that that breeds. Ultimately, if choice is an omission, that something's gone wrong, that we're not able to universalize the best across the board, then the kind of answer becomes obvious to me. Basically, we should be striving to achieve the thing that you've said, Adrian, that everyone's local service would run at a good standard to a quick time and in a way that suits their needs. They should still have say, they should still be able to make decisions about what their care looks like and talk to their professionals as equals that's a better way of empowering people, I think, than saying we're going to allow there to be bad outcomes, good outcomes, and rest on your ability to avoid the bad, to drive the healthcare service forward. That seems to me quite a bad way to do it.
0: Chris, thanks for your time. That's Chris Thomas from the IPPR. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. Please think about taking out a subscription. You get more details over at our newsbreaking website bylinetimes.com and a reminder as well a brilliant film over at byline tv john sweeney top television presenter has gone into ukraine i've seen this film it's very powerful looking at examples of war crimes committed by president putin's troops the film is called the eastern front terror and Torture." in Ukraine. It's at byline.tv now. This has been a production by We Bring Audio. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks for listening. Cheers now. Bye-bye.